This episode of AVXL was recorded on December 10th, 2020. We're going to talk about all the directors that are miffed at HBO Max, Anime Consolidation, Samsung's 110-inch micro-LED TV, Discovery Plus, AirPod Max, and the joys of Raspberry Pi. Don't forget, email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us, because we're answering some questions today. Testing, one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Well, Navy Excel, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. Could I say that faster, Rob, do you think? I think so. <laughs> At whatever speed it needs to be. Do we have Welcome speed? Welcome to AV Excel. Yes, we do. <laughs> your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. And it's an exciting week to be talking about home theater and audio. Let's just start off with the angriest man in Hollywood, my beloved Christopher Nolan. <laughs> He is upset. That's Robert Heron, by the way. <laughs> Find more of his work at Heron Fidelity. Yes. It's a wild Thursday morning in December. Visit our websites, avxl.com, heronfidelity.com, oh, probably patricknorton.com, and what else? That's actually going live shortly. Ah, oh, sweet. We mentioned it last week, right? The excitement over the next Wonder Woman movie, Wonder Woman 1984. Then Warner Brothers is basically saying they're going to release all their 2021 movies on HBO Max, which is what I will affectionately call a grand violation of all that is traditional and theatrical releases. But they're going for it. As Robert has been recently, I was on Daily Tech News Show a couple of days ago. We were talking about the incredible, how many new streaming services have come out and this sort of competition for your dollars. And as Tom likes to say, don't be a completist. You don't need all the services. But this is kind of crazy. Let me grab the current latest Netflix subscriber numbers, right? So let's, let's set the table for this one. Netflix has, as of some point in 2020, third quarter of 2020, 195, over 195 million paid subscribers worldwide, 73 million in the U.S. And HBO Max, which is now going to host some of the biggest movie launches of 2021, has something in the neighborhood of 8 million? Exactly. It doesn't seem like the best place to be launching the most popular content from some of the right. quote-unquote biggest theatrical releases of not only the end of this year, but next year as well. And the way Christopher Nolan put it, some of the reasons why him and many, many other content creators aren't very happy right. about this is that he called it the worst streaming service. And when you look at the number of subscribers currently, it is kind of uninspiring. Oh, I have an update. There are now 12.6 million HBO Max subscribers, oh. which is still... 10? 62, 63 million less than Netflix has in the United States alone. Just go ahead. Indeed. <laughs> Some of them were also mentioning potential piracy issues, but I'm not really sure how that would be different from any other service out there. For me, right. it's the fact that as, say, a director or a cinematographer, you want to be able to display your content in the best possible way. Currently, HBO Max doesn't offer anything beyond 1080p, at least until they get through this trial with Wonder Woman in 4K right. and Dolby Vision, Dolby Atmos. I can see why it's like, great, we're looking at putting our content out on a service without a lot of subscribers, relatively speaking. 
Right. There's not even probably established workflows to really ensure that this content that's going to be out will look its best in the best possible light, where it's like, even if you had all the best home theater gear, you may not be able to take advantage of anything beyond, say, uh, at best, a 1080p stream with regular color and regular brightness. And that would make me unhappy, especially considering... I almost avoid content that is not in HDR now, especially if it's new content. It should be in 4K HDR and hopefully with a really good audio track to go along with it. Mm -hmm. As long as HBO Max can continue to step up. And I know they are planning to offer more and more movies with higher end features like 4K streaming, HDR, Dolby Vision, Dolby Atmos, whatever. But still... It seems that anybody doing work being released on Warner Brothers is kind of pigeonholed at the moment. Who's making the money? <laughs> That's where things get interesting, right? Because HBO Max and Warner are owned by AT&T. AT&T is a massive telecom that's kind of used to doing whatever it feels like. I've been an AT&T subscriber for years. I know what that feels like. There's a great quote in The Hollywood Reporter. Dolan says, Warner Brothers had an incredible machine for getting a filmmaker's work out everywhere, both in theaters and in the home, and they are dismantling it as we speak. They don't even understand what they're losing. Their decision makes no economic sense, and even the most casual Wall Street investor can see the difference between disruption and dysfunction. So Nolan's been making films with Warner's since 2002. He's a pretty serious player. I mean, look, you've you've heard me talk about lots of Christopher Nolan films over the years. I'm not going to bore you, but... What's crazy is by kind of smashing the theatrical window, by not giving an exclusive period of distribution to theaters, it's going to get really interesting. And and this is, there's some serious, 17 movies, which includes The Matrix 4, The Suicide Squad, Dune. These are some big, expensive movies. And part of what Nolan and other people are suggesting is that they're not going to get the kind of revenue. On one hand, Warner Brothers isn't going to get the kind of revenue by eliminating this theatrical release. And in the future, it's going to be more difficult to make all of the big Hollywood money if there's not, you know, those theater, those ticket sales. And what really gets kind of crazy is that there's probably going to be a lot of lawsuits If for no other reason than if I have a movie and Warner Brothers decides to give it to HBO Max on day of release, what if Apple or Netflix or Amazon Prime would have paid a significantly larger chunk of change for those distribution rights? This is going to get messy. I think. I agree. It's also in this crazy time where it is really uncertain when regular theaters will recover at all. And I can only imagine that as a content creator, it's just being able to hit the biggest market in the best quality. And neither of those currently apply to HBO Max. Right. I'm sure things will change in the coming year to some degree. And I say this over and over, but I always look at someone like Netflix in terms of... Right. Quality in terms of visual quality, production and distribution, and nobody does it better right now. I want that if I were a content creator. I want somebody to say, hey, look, we'll get this beautiful visual and audible experience to our subscribers, our, our tens of millions or hundreds of millions of subscribers better than anyone. I understand the pain. I've been whining about video quality on, on HBO 
now for a significant chunk of time. It's gotten a little bit better with HBO Max. You know, we're going to see 4K streaming and all the HDR and Atmos, which I'm excited about with Wonder Woman 1984. But there's like no plan for how that's going to work moving forward. There's no promises there. You know, there's a huge back catalog. And, you know, the other thing that happens is Wonder Woman 1984 is only going to be on HBO Max for a finite number of days. I think the, the Harry Potter films are there for, what, like two weeks when they launched it in order to attract subscribers. That was a question I had as well in terms of international release. I mean, we do have a potential for a vaccine coming up. It would make more sense that 2021 is going to be a lot better for theaters than 2020 was. Yeah. Hopefully, that's the way things go down. But in the interim, it's painful, though, to be a, a content yeah. creator who may have been sitting on content now all year that's been ready to go with really right. no way to get it out, uh, at least in terms of a public release where people can attend a theater. Right. To director's credits, there is a cinematic experience that happens when you are in a large room full of excited participants watching a movie that is vastly different than, you know, me and the family, you know, or me, you know, at midnight watching this, my family won't want you because the boys are too young. Like, um, you know, watching it, it's, it's a, it's a different experience to oh, without a doubt share, share it in a theater versus watching it alone. And sometimes I vastly prefer watching it alone, but I can also think of some absolutely mystical experiences I had in theaters surrounded by enthusiastic fans watching for a next film. There's another, uh, Hollywood reporter article, Warner brothers smashes box office windows. will send an entire 21, 21 site to HBO Max. One of the things it says in there, quote, insiders say that the Wonder Woman 1984 split of ticket sales is far better for exhibitors than normal. So they are hmm. given a little bit of uh, uh, more generous terms to theater owners. Good. Uh, but also sources say that, quote, they did not inform partners such as Legendary, which has Dune and Godzilla versus Kong, that their films were included in this plan. Uh, did I mention mess? I am, I hate to use the word spoiled, but I have been living with, you know, the streaming capabilities of a service like Netflix for a while now. And right. anything they release is going to be in the best quality that at least current home theater like televisions and projectors can actually support. And on top of that, as far as the theater experience, I truly miss going to something like Dolby Cinemas, where it's a half a million dollar laser projection setup that can do beyond color that I can achieve in a home theater environment, as well as sound that just is awe-inspiring and the reclining seats and the vibrating seats and the pre-selected seating and the, oh, you know, the food and drink selections. Yeah. <laughs> I miss all of that. And I, I hope to see that sooner than later for 2021. And good luck to Mr. Nolan and every other content creator out there in terms of yeah. what you do in the interim working for at least Warner Brothers at this point and I could imagine there's going to be more deals like these for any other major publisher like that I can't wait to see Tenant which I, hear you. I was not going to see in a theater this summer <laughs> Uh, in anime consolidation news, Sony's Funimation has purchased Crunchyroll for uh, just over a billion dollars. And if you're an anime enthusiast, uh, I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing, but it has happened or it is going through. Crunchyroll, of course, being the massive source of animation in the U.S. I think of it as the primary source of animation in the U.S. or new animation. And I may be wrong about that. And I invite you to email ask at avxl.com if, if you think there are better places to find the new anime. 
they're big, uh, significantly bigger than HBO Max, about twice as big as HBO Max plus HBO Go. You're talking about 70 million free free subscribers and or uh, 70 million free members and 3 million paid subscribers. And, you know, they have anime streaming, they have production companies at Sony. And apparently in 2017 and 2018, according to Polygon's article on this, uh, it grew to nearly half the industry's 19 billion of revenue that Sony has kind of consolidated at this point. Excellent. Sony becoming a great big anime player, hopefully in a good way. I'm surprised at how many of the TV manufacturers I've dealt with over the years were always quick to point out when Crunchyroll popped up. And it clearly was a popular <laughs> service. People were asking for it. And the fact that it's yeah. being rolled into fun Funimation, I, I hope it's a good thing. I hope that consolidation at least isn't limiting more than it is just simply making it easier for folks to find the cool content they want. Yeah. There is a lot of anime on Netflix, I should acknowledge. Lest that be too confusing. You had your first uh, CES briefing this morning. I did. I'm not even sure if I can say who it was. Mine started this week. It's going to be fun. We don't know if there's going to be any news left. I think there's a lot of NDA dates that end at CES, but uh, I I don't know if there's going to be the kind of massive blocks of announce. I can't decide if CES is dead, crippled, or just incredibly behind. I think it's going to be very similar to how I've operated that show for the last few years in terms of remotely as much as possible. Right. As far as that day of announcements for CES, where all of the major companies have their press announcements, it's going to be very similar. It'll just simply be online streamed in terms of having specific times of those shows, a day of going from one company to the next to listen to their cool announcement and their cool presentation. That will be doable in remote style streaming environments. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, The things I'm already seeing are looking great in terms of just a solid, interesting progression, at least in terms of my side of it, where it's mostly display devices. One of them, though, that is teased currently and apparently available now, if the price is right, is Samsung's 110-inch micro LED television. Mm. CNET reported that this thing is available today in Korea, currently, South Korea, of course, Mm -hmm. and it can be yours for a cool $150,000 if you're willing to import one this way. 4K resolution, if you think about that 110-inch screen size, is the equivalent of putting four 55-inch panels together. And, of course, they're going to have a way to do four-way input into that. So you can have four simultaneous 55-inch screens if you want, in terms of being able to watch multiple channels or do a cool video wall-style thing. The main benefit for this is no longer is it the blocks. We were talking a couple weeks ago or so about how the potential for micro LED could be pretty cool with products like the wall, Samsung's previous product in this category, that used tiles that you could place together in a variety of size or shape even to produce the display device. This is going to be more TV-like in the sense that it's a fixed 110 inches, but still using that micro LED, micro red, blue, and green LEDs scaled across that 110 inches for the 4K resolution they're talking about. This is something truly that would be more in line of replacing a projector system. Mm -hmm. And it would give you not only incredible contrast with LED technology, that brightness too, and the robustness of the display should make it very, very compelling. Although the price is, you know, a cool 150. (laughs) Cool 150, big. (laughs) My projection investment is considerably lower than that for a similar size screen. 
but it's not micro LED. There are a few details currently out about that particular mm-hmm. TV, and Samsung has yet to announce anything else publicly. If you want more information about that, check out the Samsung website. And I'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes. They have a page where you can request more information and provide your email address if you're so interested. Yay. Yep. You, uh, I think between the two of us, we probably own a dozen and a half Raspberry Pis across multiple generations. I have at least three. You've been playing around with RetroPie. I did. Among the many things I'm playing with, with my Raspberry Pi 4 that I built out a month or so ago, or a mm-hmm. couple months now, is just having a way to turn that into a classic gaming console. And one of those is with a wonderful package called RetroPie. For anyone running a Raspberry Pi 4, this will run on any Raspberry Pi hardware, but I find it's particularly fun with the 4 because of its built-in oomph with the latest processor they're using, lots of RAM. It also has built-in Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. In terms of setup and configuration, it's stupid easy. Thank goodness. There's also excellent documentation. I'm currently using a couple of old PS3 controllers that with the latest builds of RetroPie were very simple to add in terms of linking those older wireless Bluetooth controllers to this RetroPie console build. I am just going all crazy nostalgic looking at some of the titles I've, I have on a variety of different console types. It's just nice to see those things kind of like live on and still be accessible today in a relatively easy to set up and affordable way of doing it. Granted, the Raspberry Pi 4 is about a $70 computer, but things like, you know, my Raspberry Pi Zero W, the wireless version starts at, I think it's seven or $10. These are not expensive (laughs) computers. And the software is out there. The community is strong and it's a fun way just to get your foot wet or your feet wet with a little Raspberry Pi action, be it that or just a simple small computer, your new desktop <laughs> in the palm of your hand, so to speak. Well, with the Raspberry Pi, especially if you have one of them with more memory, it is the first time I've, because I've literally done this every single Raspberry Pi I've bought over the, you know, the, the years of them being released since, you know, Gen 1. Is this the first one where I've actually used it at a desktop without having to be patient? Nice. You know, it feels like an actual desktop PC I would use. And you're about to show off something very important, which I believe is cooling and a case. Yes. I'm just showing you the case I went with. And I think I showed this off a while ago, but it's it's a solid heatsink case for this thing. It's made of all Mm -hmm. like a billet aluminum or whatever. The problem I would say is if you plan on running your Pi at max performance for extended periods of time, I would probably get something with active cooling in terms of a case for it. Yeah. I love this passive design. And for things like RetroPie, it doesn't take a lot of processing power on this thing, but it still warms up pretty good. And if I were pushing this any harder, I think I would want to put a fan on it. <laughs> it, it can get a little toasty if you're really grinding on these, trying to run some of the latest and greatest software out there for this. Yeah. It's fantastic stuff. And the fact that you're basically your OS runs off of an SD memory card means that you can just slip them out and swap them out for different configurations Mm -hmm. and setups on the same system relatively easily and affordably. Yeah. And it's fun. And we should point out, like we've talked about in the past, but uh, Rune Labs will run off of a Raspberry Pi to make a Rune endpoint. Uh, Volumio runs on Raspberry Pi. Plex runs on Raspberry Pi. They are an incredibly inexpensive way to create an endpoint that you can stream to for a television or an audio system. 
Uh, I have used them to stream Volumio to speakers attached to an amplifier. I've used them to create Plex endpoints. We've done all sorts of crazy stuff with them too, including a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, uh, a device that helped track when the very, very distant bathrooms were in use at a large office that uh, Michael Hand and I worked in. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Back in the day. <laughs> you know, I've seen these used in business applications as the display device for the TVs that were, say, located in a building. Everything had a network yeah. connection behind it, and it would run some custom software so they could do their own branding and imaging up on these display systems easily and effectively. But I'll go back to my Raspberry Pi Zero W real quick. That $10 computer is so freaking fantastic with built-in Bluetooth. Does it have Bluetooth? Yeah. It has Wi-Fi for sure. And that's what I used for my solar plane tracking project which actually I brought it home to do a little reconfiguration on it. I should get that finished this weekend as well, but I've been busy. Damn it. I've been busy. Yeah. Retropie.org.uk, <laughs> volumio.org. The projects are endless in terms of this and the ability for, I think anyone, if you get the right package installed, editing something like a configuration yeah. file or doing an SSH login style, once you get it down and do it once or twice, it gets really easy. And the fact that it's all done off of an SD card, if you totally hose it, just format the damn thing and re-image it and you, you can be back <laughs> up to speed in a few minutes. Yeah. It's fun to experiment with those products. And they're so inexpensive. Yeah. And they're so much fun. Love that. Zero W. And they're a great place to learn Linux. Mm. Discovery Plus. Discovery is embracing the world of streaming. As somebody who has worked for a company that was bought by Discovery, this is fascinating to me. Quote, more than 55,000 episodes from Discovery's iconic brands, the BBC's Natural History Collection, A&E Networks, Group 9, which is what the place Rob and I started HD Nation at, eventually evolved into, and more. Quote, we are seizing the global opportunity to be the world's definitive product for unscripted storytelling. You may not realize Discovery owns a lot of channels. Uh, HGTV, Food Network, TLC, ID own the Travel Channel, Discovery Channel, Animal Planet. They are launching a Magnolia Network, uh, which I am only familiar with because of shopping in Target. Uh, and it's kind of crazy, like 2,500 shows from Discovery's portfolio, uh, all across the portfolio, 1,500 episodes from a bunch of their A&E network stuff, which will include, quote, the first 48, bring it, dance bombs, ice road truckers, pawn stars, ancient aliens, storage wars, 60 days in, intervention, and ghost hunters. There's going to be new series coming uh, in the U.S., none of which I find particularly interesting, right up to the point where you hear that they were doing stuff with Sir David Attenborough and Mike Rowe, who either one of which I would I would sit around listening to reading a phone book uh, is my level of fandom for both those two people. Nice. I literally have this. Mike Rowe, Sir David Attenborough. Um, I get excited. Uh, they're going to have Planet Earth, Blue Planet, Frozen Planet, and they're going to own the U.S. premiere of A Perfect Planet. The risk of original and new programming is kind of insane. It's going to be five bucks with commercials, seven bucks without. Verizon customers are going to get a free year on some plans. Uh, you'll get five user profiles and four concurrent streams. They get a little vague <laughs> when you ask what platform it's going to be on. <coughs> HBO Max. <coughs> Could be on so many more <coughs> households <coughs> if it was available on Roku. That's too bad. <laughs> oh. It will, quote, be available across major platforms, including connected TVs, web, mobile, and tablets. That's about the least specific launch list I've ever seen. 
It's launching January 4th, 2021, i.e. a few weeks from now in the United States. If you're in the UK or Ireland uh, and you have SkyQ, you can get access to it now. And we understand it's also already available in India, but all attempts of my Google Foo to find out how and where in India were resisted by Google in particular and the internet in general. More exclusives. We were talking about a bunch of stuff uh, last week that led to me promising to track down a list of test tracks from Brent Butterworth, who is a fantastic audio reviewer and does not just a tremendous amount of scientific objective testing involving spendy tools. And I'm not trying to, to undermine the fact that the tools are spendy, but it, it's a serious investment to do audio testing, just like it's a serious investment to do television calibration. I ran into Brett virtually this morning at the... Uh, oh, funny. <laughs> at the quote-unquote pre-CES briefing I received from the unnamed company. Yeah, Brent's awesome. <laughs> Brent's awesome. Uh, yeah. He is annoyed by overpriced cables even more than I am, which is kind of difficult to imagine. Um but he's done a couple articles over the years that talks about the tracks he uses for evaluating audio equipment. In fact, that's the name of the LifeWire article he did, the 10 oh, best cool. tracks for evaluating audio equipment, and talks about all the different audio qualities they test. It's a great article. It also ties into an article that he did uh, eight or nine years ago for Sound and Vision called Test Tracks, Your Most Important Audio Tool. And Jeff Morrison, who's a friend of ours also, did a great article talking to a whole bunch of people who talk about, who review audio products for a living with their best headphone test tracks. And that one's, gosh, that's like six, seven years old now. I'll be sure to include those links because you talked about yeah. that last week and we were talking about just how do you evaluate in terms of measurement of performance? This is pretty cool. I'm glad we followed up on this. You know, a lot of it comes down to your experience. It's not magic ears, it's trained ears, right? And a lot of people I've talked to who review headphones or who have created headphones, they listen and then they use the test equipment to evaluate stuff uh, objectively to kind of verify or puzzle out when things don't quite sound right. I find myself watching calibrators on YouTube sure. or for video just to see how yeah. they do it and if there's something I might be able to do differently or better. Mm -hmm. And I find that very useful. I find it good to look at how people do what they do, including the specific mm -hmm. test materials and tools and yeah. just getting your head wrapped around the methodology that they've come up with. Yeah. It's a learning experience. Even if you're just nodding the whole time going, yep, yep, yep. I know. I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> at least Some once in a while, it's a good reference and a good uh, check. It's a fascinating read. I want to I want to drive traffic to the article, so I won't get too far into it. But it's cool. a fascinating read because he talks about you know like the first thing he listens to often, the first or second things he listens to. There's there's two tracks: Toto's Rosanna, um, which if you are of a certain age probably has you giggling hysterically right now, and Holly Cole's Train Song, which is a fantastic recording. Cool. And I'm just going to quote Brent here. Scoff, if you will, at Toto's album, Toto 4, but the track's dense mix truly spans the audio spectrum. This is usually the quickest test we found for judging the accuracy of an audio product's tonal balance, the relative level of bass to mid-range to treble. Just 30 seconds of Rosanna will tell you whether a product is on the good or bad side of things, i.e. if there's too much bass or too much treble or too little of either, or if you're dealing with a smiley curve of audio or if you're dealing with a relatively flat curve. Uh, another one is uh, the Coriel's Sentenza del Cuero Allegro. And I apologize for my terrible, terrible pronunciation. But 
he says, listen for the castanets in the recording, as they are key. If the instruments sound like they're coming from 20 or 30 feet behind the guitars, and if you can hear them echoing off the walls and the ceiling of the large church where this recording was made, then your system is doing a fine job. And that's part of the, the mystery, the majesty, the awesomeness of stereo reproduction, is how it positions objects in space when you're sitting in the sweet spot. That's a really good article. Like Robert said, we'll, we'll put the links in the show notes. 10 best tracks for evaluating audio equipment. Test tracks, your most important audio tool at soundandvision.com. And the best headphone test tracks up on Forbes.com by Jeffrey Morrison, which includes also includes some of my favorite tracks. Uh, Amber Rubarth, Session for the 17th Ward, although I use a very different track than uh, Steve Gutenberg uses and many, many, many more in there, including uh, Lauren Dragan, who's a fantastic headphone reviewer. There's good stuff in there. Good, 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 good stuff to learn from. Bueno. I highly recommend all those articles. Always good. The uh, <laughs> We had a, a big old pile of viewer questions. Uh, one I want to get because it's so close to Christmas. Uh, Chris emailed ask at avxl.com. I have a pair of used M-Audio speakers, about 100 bucks for my office, and they've been fantastic, but I need something smaller for my son's room. I'm looking for some good computer speakers for under 100 preferably something smaller and not bulky. Is that an impossible ask? They're going to go on a shelf above his computer monitor. We can fit a subwoofer on the floor below, but it would be preferable if the actual speakers were a little smaller for the shelf. Used is fine as well. Thanks, Chris. My first reaction was like, it's never too early to teach your child to stuff big speakers in small spaces. And then you can get like a used AV receiver off Craigslist or Allo's Volt D Plus or Emotiva's Basic A100. And uh, those are already 30 to 130 bucks over your budget without speakers, um, which kind of shuts that down. I was amazed to find that Logitech still makes more than a dozen PC speakers, starting at a robust $15 up to $170. Uh, several other items include a subwoofer. They don't really talk about them that much uh, on the PR perspective. So I was kind of like, wow, look at all the speakers they still make. A lot of people have nice things to say. Like there's, I think, 25, 28,000 for something star reviews of Creative's uh, Pebble speakers, which are 20 bucks. They're a little peculiar because they use USB for power and then they use a 3.5 millimeter jack for the audio. They are far too tiny to have any bass whatsoever, which I think would kill the gaming and music experience. But for an extra $20, you can get a version with a sub but uh, I would spend some more money and get a, a, what I suspect would be a vastly better speaker. I'm tempted to order these at 40 bucks just to hear what they sound like. Klipsch still makes their ProMedia 2.1. It's a THX certified uh, computer speaker. You may like, you may not like THX certification, but it usually means that they are reaching a standard of performance that is a good start. These are going to have killer bass because they have a subwoofer, and they're only 125 bucks direct from the Klipsch website. So if you can stretch your budget to 25 bucks, I had one of these systems for a long time, and 125 bucks seems like a steal. The other thing I hadn't realized is that some pro monitor companies are are making some really inexpensive speakers, right? Because I can think of like JBL's 305P Mark II. Those are really solid, but they're 200 bucks a pair, probably a little bigger than you want. That's a really kind of impressive speaker, a powered speaker. Wirecutter found Mackie Studio monitors and uh, Presonus Eris Studio monitors. They're small. They have like three and a half inch woofers, which will you know do fine down about 50 or 60 hertz, but they both sell for a little under 100 bucks on Amazon. They're not going to have huge bass, but they will have bass. They're not going to be like Genelec Perfect. Um, they're not going to be like Neumann Studio monitors, but they're also not going to cost 6000 a pair. This is 100 bucks for a pair of powered speakers from brands that actually have a good reputation. Aris actually has a quarter-inch TRS and RCA inputs on the back. They've got like front panel, one-eighth-inch stereo that, you know, Wirecutter 
brought those as kind of their new pick, uh, these PreSonus Eris monitors. Oh, so, nice. Yeah. You know, if the PC output is problematic or noisy, you can upgrade the output of the PC with a DAC to something cleaner, or if the cables, you know, are, are picking up a lot of noise, you can find something that's better shielded. You don't have to spend a lot of money on that. Amazon Basic or a Monoprice 8th uh, inch 3.5 millimeter stereo cable should be shielded enough to keep things from noisy, being noisy. Many of these options are just simply awesome, but do you really think this parent wants to equip their kids with speakers that they'll have to be on a regular basis yelling at them to turn it down? Yes. I'm thinking that $20 Creative Pebble is, is the way to go. No. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have to give my parents a huge amount of credit because they let me have their old stereo, this crazy set of Sony speakers, which probably to me now would sound atrocious, but... and the house was large enough and they were patient enough uh, or maybe they were just so thankful I wasn't out, you know, driving drunk and picking fights with, you know, whatever you picked fights with in Central Bucks, Pennsylvania back in the day that they were okay with my loud music. I, you know, <sighs> plenty of great options and you do not have to spend a lot if you don't want to. Yeah. I was simply trying to make a joke about the potential for how soundproof is the house or is this kid in the basement and it's pretty damn quiet and you're not going to really worry about it too much. But otherwise, my, yeah. My children are quietly working uh, within ears reach. Headphones. I'll just say the thundering children as they stomp from one end of the set. Well, they actually, they have some pretty nice headsets. I would rather they had an excellent audio experience yep. and you totally. teach them how to turn the volume down and be aware of that. I also, obviously, as we've established over the last decade, have really serious audio issues and it just pains me to hear crappy audio but i gotta say I, you know i'll i will buy a set of the pebbles so we can have the experience and talk about it on the show <laughs> i want to say i've used something similar to that pebble i have equipped personal computers with that it works and having a sub probably would have helped so i might actually spend that extra 20 bucks yeah. <laughs> but otherwise man Mackie studio monitors. Mm -hmm. I'm leaning more that way. Yeah. <laughs> or even those JBL 305s. Oh, those JBL 305s are really impressive for the money. We should also, while we're talking about money and audio reproduction, we should also mention that Apple announced the AirPods Max, which we were anticipating earlier this year. We were not anticipating the $550 price tag. I have no opinion on this really until I know some people that I trust get yeah. ears on and tell me what the what is. Because the price this is, is premium, and it should deliver. They make the magic. <laughs> they're making Bose and Sony's top of the line equipment suddenly seem affordable, which is crazy. But you know, they're talking about quote high fidelity audio, adaptive EQ, active noise cancellation, and spatial audio. I'm pre-ordering a set. I'm probably going to return them. I'm going into this with the highest of hopes that this is the kind of audio performance I would expect for a $550 headphone, or at least something as, as good as Sony's XM3, XM4 after it's been EQ'd. Right. $550. The Sony's noise cancellation is solid, and if you're willing to EQ them, you can get an excellent you know audio experience out of them. The crew over at the Wirecutter, who's heard uh, more of these noise-canceling headphones, are big fans of, of Bose's current stuff, either one of which is going to cost you $200 less than these. These are impressively spendy. We'll see. And for me to say that about a headphone is is highly amusing. They also have the weirdest case ever, but you'll have to go to to Apple's website to see that. <laughs> Protect your investment. It's a very strange case. That's all I'm going to say. Got time for another viewer question? Are we feeling the viewer question love today? Why not? Let's do it. All right. 
Maurice posted up on Patreon.com, and uh, we want to thank Maurice for being a patron. And we want to remind you that if you want to help support the show financially, you want to get into our hangouts and stuff, do us a favor, become a patron at Patreon.com slash AVXL. Maurice has a question about ceiling speakers. He was fortunate enough that his home's builder put in a set of four for a 5.1 home theater setup. However, they look like basic clip speakers, and there's no swivel or pivot or adjustability that some of the higher-end speakers offer. I find the sound is good directly downwards, which isn't so great if you're not seated directly underneath the speakers. What higher-end ceiling speakers would you recommend? Does the pivot even make that much of a difference if it's only 15 degrees? I'm thinking of staying with clips so I don't have a drastically different cutout. It's currently a 6.5-inch cutout. The CDT56C2 or the Pro16RC are under consideration and within price. The system is used 50-50 for music and TV and movies, and no bookshelf speakers are out of the option. I already tried pleading for those with my wife. Thanks. My first thought was, like, any chance your wife would go for in-wall speakers? Because you can just sort of surround them with photos, and they kind of blend in, and, and they're not, you know... Not it, like that. No, not a chance? No. So most in-ceiling speakers point straight down because they're made for audio distribution throughout the house. Fortunately for you, that works fine for rear surrounds or Atmos speakers. It's not so great as you've discovered for the front three speakers, your left, right, and center channel. So 15-degree pivots are kind of the standard you hear from a lot of audio vendors that do in-ceiling speakers. Now, I talked to the crew at ELAC when they first released the debut ICDT61W, which started out as an installer speaker and it now is available all over the internet. It's a pointable in-ceiling companion to their debut lineup. I am a fan, a big fan of the debut and the debut 2.0 speakers. They are some very solid home theater speakers for the money. I like them a lot. Use them in my living room for quite some time. Now, if memory serves me correctly, ELAC went with a 30-degree angle drivers because literally Andrew Jones, speaker designing genius, and, and Chris ELAC, the, the marketing maven over there, they sat in a room and they realized 15 degrees kind of barely changed the directionality, for lack of a better word, of the sound. And 30 degrees was the sweet spot where you were really able to kind of angle and point the sound towards the audience rather than straight down. And then I dug through the ELAC manual because I'm a research nerd, and it says, some speakers simply provide a swiveling tweeter that can be rotated through a narrow range to, quote, aim, unquote, it at the listener. The typical range provided in practice produces almost no change in the sound balance and does nothing to address the directivity of the woofer. So this ELAC is designed so that both the woofer and tweeter are mounted at a 30-degree angle that allows the sound to be better directed towards the listening area. It's not going to be as good as having a bookshelf speaker, a standing, you know, a full-size speaker or an in-wall speaker, but it's going to be a, a big step up. So those ELACs have 6.5-inch woofers like the Clips you mentioned, which is a fairly common for an in-ceiling driver, but the Clips speakers you, you link to say they need an 8.3-inch cutout. So if your ceiling cutouts are 6.5-inch, they might have 4-inch drivers, not 6.5-inch drivers. And if they do, just get a utility knife and make the cutouts bigger because you'll want the extra oomph off of your speakers. Check your templates. Yeah. <laughs> Check them twice. Yeah. Nothing sucks worse than a ceiling drywall repair. Uh, well, several things suck worse, but it's just not something you want to do if you can avoid it. So both the clips you mentioned include a tweeter that swivels while the woofer rotates 360 degrees, and it can pivot 15 degrees in any direction. They're kind of a, a mechanism, a physical mechanism that you can point up to 15 degrees. They have similar frequency ranges. They have similar impedance loads, or they, they carry a similar impedance rating. The woofer and tweeter materials are different. You're probably going to be able to find the, that CDT5650C2 
like it's got a, a biscuit under $400 MSRP it typically sells for 150 bucks online. It's probably going to be easier to find that because that pro 16 RC is basically a custom installer product from clips that is not sold at any major retailer. Like I found them for sale at two audio sites. I've never heard of for 220 or $390. I would go with the one that's actually legitimately available to consumers. And by the way, if you give the Elax I mentioned a shot, they're selling for about $289 per speaker, which is not cheap, but I think probably within the kind of price range you're looking at for those Klipsch speakers. So just a thought. I'm eyeballing those Elax. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Jones does nice work. Dale sent you an update on the burn-in problem. Dale! Ah, Dale. the Netflix logo in his LG OLED. <laughs> <laughs> on his LG OLED. Kind of a permanent fixture. Pound ouch. Uh, Dale wrote us, quote, Apparently my model had a known issue and LG is going to replace the panel and I think possibly some other components. You may want to let listeners know about this in case they have a similar problem. Mine is a 55 inch bought at Costco in early 2018. The model number was the OLED 55 B7P-U and was assembled in Mexico in October of 2017. I will have to pay for the service call, but not the parts. So heads up on that if you have an LG OLED. And Dale did note that persistence is key. He says that you suggested that I call Costco due to their extended warranty. I had actually already done that, but was told by Square Trade, the warranty company, that burn-in was not covered. Then I was in Costco and told my story to the Costco employee in the TV department. He told me that LG did have burn-in issues with some TVs during that time frame. He suggested that I call the Costco concierge number, which I had completely forgotten about. I called that number, and after giving them the background, they put me on hold and got LG on the line for me. LG then asked me to send a picture and information like the model and the serial number. A few days later, he got the call back from LG regarding his repair, and he adds, quote, You got me motivated to not give up so easily and give Costco a chance to make it right. I'm not sure, but I think having LG get an email from Costco might have helped get things done, end quote. Well, Dale, thank you for keeping us updated on this, and good luck on this repair. I would assume everything's going to work out quite nicely for you. In your case, fortunately, you will no longer be subjected to permanent Netflix branding on your beautiful OLED pixel-based display. Yeah, That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. It's nice that they're fixing it. I'm really glad Dale got that repair done. A couple of follow-ups from last week. We asked you, by the way, uh, to tell us how you were using voice assistant uh, products or if you were using them and how they were integrated in your home theater or your home. Uh, several of you emailed. Um, we're going to let a few more. We, we had a few more starting to come in. We expect a few more. So if you have thoughts on using a voice assistant in your home, how you use it, if you still use it, if the plume is off of the rose or if it's become an integral part of your ability to function, we're curious. Uh, email us, ask at avxl.com. Something I did not expect from Sonos. This is kind of exciting. I saw this pop up the other day. I think right after we had recorded last week's episode, effectively with the latest software update, which my Sonos Arc actually just updated. So did the app as well. The Sonos subs, if you have one, you can now add another one and have dual sub support for Sonos products. It's nice that if you already are invested in Sonos and it's something you really wanted to add, particularly right. in your favorite home theater room, a second sub is awfully great. And the fact that it's now supported 
right within the app itself. So you can yeah. apply room tuning and other functionality to that as well. That should give you the boom you may want from your Sonos gear. Apparently, the, they had a lot of customers and a lot of custom installers ask for this. If you're wondering why you would want more than one Sonos subwoofer in a room, and it's 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 not my favorite subwoofer. It's a little boomy, but I will say it, it adds a lot of low-end thump to the dance tracks and to the explosions. By locating multiple subwoofers in a room, it helps you kind of eliminate standing waves or room modes and expand the sweet spot for the low-end bass, which is always a positive thing. In fact, I'm about to end up with three and four subwoofers, if you count the two subwoofers that are built into my tower speakers right now. I will eliminate all of the room modes. Or you could just stop reproducing the low end, but that would kind of kill the point of having really amazing speakers. Yeah, <laughs> don't do that. Chroma subsampling is, is something I've probably said more times in the last few weeks than I've said in, in the rest of my entire life. Uh, which is probably not shocking to the majority of people listening and probably terribly upsetting to some of you out there. I was obsessed with getting full 422 out of my Apple TV and into my projector. And so I picked up a, you know, a monoprice certified premium HDMI cable that, that did a full 18 gigabit per second, which allowed me to do 422 between my Apple TV and my projector. In theory, it would allow me to do 444 if I had a source device that would do that. But essentially that ratio, the 422, 420, 444 is all about chroma subsampling. And Robert is much better equipped to talk about the joys of chroma subsampling. Oh, I should also mention, more importantly, the upgraded HDMI cables fixed a lot of the synchronization issues between my AVR and my projector, which was amazing. Because at some point it would just stop syncing when I changed, for example, from HBO to Disney Plus or from the... Uh, it's just it's nice when, when things fix things. The signal is strong. <laughs> yeah. You know. Chromosome sampling is almost rocket science if you really dig into it, like if you go through the wonderful article on Wikipedia. However, uh, one way to think about it is, like you mentioned, the ratios, those numbers, 444, 422, 420. There are other ratios that are valid within that color subsampling system. All of them are effectively ways of compressing color information that we are not as sensitive to in terms of what we see. Detail, black and white detail, luminance detail is far more right. important in terms of picture quality, how sharp something looks. It is ideal, of course, to match that black and white detail with equally detailed color information as well. And that's what something like RGB or 444 is exactly. It is the uncompressed version of that. However, that color information takes up a lot of space and one way to save that information, if it biologically is really not needed, you can produce something that looks damn good with much less information is by subsampling the color. In terms of things like 422, that's where they're literally chopping the horizontal resolution of color in half. And when you go to 420, the most popular of all the subsampling systems and ratios, that one actually reduces the horizontal and the vertical color resolution by half. You can think of it as quartering it at that point. Right. Someday we'll all have sources and devices and cables that will support a full 444. But the reality is, is your eyeballs. Oh, your eyeballs. <laughs> Our eyeballs mostly evolve to detect things like motion in darkness. We don't want to be eaten by a jaguar in the jungle. So we're very, very good at detecting motion in very, very low amounts of light because yes. that was critical 
to surviving, being able to tell the difference between subtle shades of white at the paint store, maybe not as high on the evolutionary scale. Maybe over time we will be less sensitive to Luma and more sensitive to colors and their impact on our social status, but it hasn't happened yet. And just um. <laughs> modern display devices are, in, are pretty incredible in, in the sense that you can feed them yeah. just about anything and internally it will calculate it out and restore right. it back to the original RGB before it's displayed to you. Yeah. Is there a distinct visual difference, though, between, say, 420 that is used on every piece of distributed video from disk to streaming right. compared to something like 444? I personally would say no for most video content. When it comes to personal computers, though, or even game consoles, having 444 Chroma is important or being able to do RGB output specifically in the situations with lots of text on the screen. That's one of the first places you'll notice a loss of information is if you're dealing, say, with colored text on a colored background. And if you chop half the resolution out, either horizontal, vertically or both, that can introduce some artifacts in particular that would make that text more difficult to read or be legible. But when it comes to motion video, the content we're all used to, just keep in mind that they effectively chop out half the horizontal, half the vertical as it's encoded on the disc or in the video stream or from wherever you're getting it. And that TV, through the magic of mathematics and knowing which colors we're more sensitive to than not, are able to reproduce something that to our eyes looks very, very close to the original 444 or RGB or just uncompressed color information. It's a fascinating read if you dig into the Chroma subsampling article on Wikipedia. Bradings has a good article. DIY Photography has a good article. Uh, you also found a really good link on 444 versus 420 on Reddit. It's amazing because you also start realizing that so much of what is recorded, you know, is not recorded in RGB, is not recorded in 444 because it's, 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 a prohibitive amount of space. I think the best in cinematography is doing things into raw formats where yes, yeah. they are preserving that information with an incredible dynamic range and then it gets processed yeah. from there. But in terms of getting that content onto disc and into your eyes, it's being put through that subsampling system just to make it <laughs> more compressible. Right. It's pretty good stuff. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to answer some more email questions next week, and uh, we're going to cover some of the new announcements. I may or may not have my ears on a set of those uh, fantastic new Apple over-ear headphones, um, he said in his weird voice, Very uh, cool. the AirPods Max. <laughs> I'm cur I'm really curious. I'm I'm. I'll talk about it next week. I, That's all I, say. I am trying to <laughs> avoid purchasing Cyberpunk, what is it, 2077? <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm trying, trying to keep that off. However, I did find Death Stranding available on Steam on sale for half off. <laughs> I had to pick that up. This is a family-friendly show, so we're not going to shout out what our friend Grant discovered you could modify in Cyberpunk 2077 in terms of your character. Oh. Because uh, uh, it's funny. But... Uh, do us a favor. If you got a question, uh, if you're curious about something, if you want to share something with the audience, email ask at avxl.com. You can always tweet at Patrick Norton or at Robert Heron or at avxl. And as always, we want to thank our patrons, patreon.com slash avxl. Your monthly contributions, your payments help make the show possible. And uh, we appreciate each and every one of you. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on avxl.